Hello and welcome to the BAFTA podcast. I'm Ollie Mann and over the next 50 minutes we'll be looking at highlights from the 2013 BAFTA and BFI screenwriting lecture series. We'll hear from five writers behind films as varied as The Dark Knight Trilogy, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Michael Clayton, Erin Brockovich and Drive. Plus, we'll mingle with an audience of writers and producers right here on the South Bank in London to find out what tips they've gleaned from the series. And writer-director David Gordon Green shares his writing tips ahead of his new film, Prince Avalanche. That's all to come on this October edition of the BAFTA Podcast. Here we are at the uh, BFI bar on the South Bank and uh, the place is swarming with um, lots of filmy types, not just those who have got the three credits on their CVs and their BAFTA memberships, uh, but a lot of aspiring writers and directors as well who are here to uh, learn some tricks of the trade. We're going to be talking to them a little bit later about what they've made of this year's screenwriting lecture series uh, and playing you some of the clips of the best bits as well. We're going to kick off with David S. Goya. He's the bloke who wrote Blade as well as Man of Steel and The Dark Knight Rises, which he wrote with uh, Christopher Nolan, of course. So a man who clearly loves his superheroes, uh, but as he was at pains to convey during his lecture, he bases his superhero movies on his own real-life experiences. And around the time I wrote Blade, I had a set of business cards printed up. And I was feeling kind of bullish. And they just said, David S. Goyer, writer. And I showed them to my writing mentor, who was an old-timer named Nelson Gidding, who'd written a lot of films for Robert Wise. And he promptly took the card and he threw it in the trash. And he said, no writer worth his salt prints up a business card that says writer on it. Nelson was old school. He considered writing a craft as opposed to an art. He felt that all writing, even science fiction or fantasy, needed to be based on human experience. One of his gripes with young writers like myself is that we wanted to start writing films without actually living any of our lives. And a writer has to have human experience, a life beyond the page, or else they're essentially drawing from nothing. Nelson had been a navigator on a bomber in World War II. His plane was shot down over Italy. He was one of only two survivors. He was Jewish, a Jewish-American soldier, captured by the Nazis, imprisoned with other Allied officers for two years, tried to escape, was recaptured, tried to escape, was recaptured. Finally, he was liberated by the Russians near the end of the war, and he spent a year drinking and carousing his way through Europe with the Russians before he made it back to America and told them that he was actually alive. When he got back to the States, his fiancée had married someone else. Heartbroken, he went to the South Pacific and somehow, this is true, managed to save Truman Capote from being knifed in a bar fight. That is human experience. And I didn't have anything like that. And I'm not suggesting you should all go out and get in bar fights. So I threw away my business cards and I started traveling. I went to the South Pacific, I learned to scuba dive, I bought a motorcycle, I crashed a motorcycle, I went skydiving, I went to Africa and South America, all throughout Asia. I got out of my comfort zone and I got some life experience. And my writing started to improve, it markedly improved. And even though I thought I'd been making a living for almost 10 years at the time, it wasn't until I'd had these experiences that I felt I could truly call myself a writer. Now, you might be asking yourself, how does one apply their personal life experience to a film about vampires or a vigilante who dresses up as a bat? I'm going to give you a couple of examples. In my travels, I'd managed to go trekking in Tibet. And when Chris Nolan and I sat down to reinvent Batman, we wanted Bruce Wayne to travel far afield. And I showed Chris some of my photographs from Tibet which I had taken during my experience. And those formed the basis for Bruce Wayne's vision quest. 
this was a place that had never seen white people before. And uh, I, I can't say that the Tibet trip was an easy trip. It was actually a very difficult trip. But I never would have imagined that that trip would have become the basis for the beginning of Batman Begins, and it did. And uh, I showed all of my pictures to the production designer, and that's why Bruce Wayne goes to Bhutan and Batman Begins. Hi, my name's Amit Hagarwal from London, and I'm an aspiring screenwriter. What is it about coming to these screenwriter lecture series that you find useful as an aspiring and indeed practicing writer? For me, personally, it's not so much about getting specific screenwriting tips. It's more really just to get inspiration from people who have achieved quite a remarkable degree of success in their, in their chosen careers. I've seen some of these lectures on channels such as Sky Arts and so on, and I want to sort of be here in the flesh, as it were, um, and be in the audience. So for me, the ones I've attended so far have been fantastic. And David S. Goyer actually was very good, wasn't he, on the business of kind of self-promotion. He was talking about how um, precocious he was when he was younger, calling up an agent when he was 20 or something. I mean, how much of his self-confidence do you think is important in, in your career? The, the ballsiest thing I've done is try and phone an actor's agent in Hollywood and gave up after the first attempt. They obviously, you know, very politely promised to return the phone call and obviously never did. Um, but I don't think that, that falls into the category of being particularly ballsy, so yet to be, yet to be visited, I think. Do you think that's a uniquely uh, American approach, that level of chutzpah, actually? Do you think Brits are ever going to be able to push themselves forward in quite that way? We tend to be a little bit more reserved, don't we? I, I think the two things. I think one is youth. You know, David Goyer was in his early 20s when he did that. And you kind of, before you've embarked on a particular career, you kind of have little to lose and you have that kind of arrogance and bloody mindedness. And I think it is a possibly a more American trait than we, you know, Brits are possessed of. And yes, it probably is something that we could do better at. All right, time for another clip from one of the screenwriter lectures this year now. And uh, well, this is Susanna Grant, the writer of 28 Days, Ever After, and Erin Brockovich. She was here on Saturday night to speak to an audience about her work and uh, in this clip we pick up the conversation with Bry Hansen when uh, she's been asked how her recent move into directing has been helping her writing. You know, I think it made me ultimately more economical. I'm not an economical writer. I have a file uh, that runs parallel to the file I'm writing of scenes I've written and deleted and it's always the trash pile and the finished script is usually 118, 120 pages. My trash pile is usually more than 200 pages long. So I overwrite so much. And that's sort of how I find what the story is. It's kind of an excavation process. I wish, you know, doing that would, you know, had made me able to be uh, more concise from the get-go, but that's just not my way. But I think it's made me a little bit clearer about how specific and economical you can be. Mm -hmm. Have you changed your process as you've got older, got more experienced? I mean, you're the most. It's not about experience. It's just about life. It's just about having, you know, children in the house who have to go to school. Right. Uh, you know, in in when I was just on my own, I would start writing around eleven o'clock at night, and I'd draw all the shades in the house, and I'd write until I fell asleep, and then I'd wake up and just keep writing, and I would exist in this sort of nether world of you know zero stimulation except the script, and I loved it, and then. I don't know, noon would roll around and I'd sort of open the shades and look at the world out there. And um, I loved that. But then when you have a spouse and children, that doesn't work very well. So now I get up very early before them and I get a couple of hours in before anyone else is up so that I'm concentrating deeply before you have to, you know, make lunch or something like that. Do you like the process? 
Oh, yes, yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's kind of like exercise in that before you think, oh, I don't really want to do that. And as soon as you're doing it, you're like, wait, I love this. And literally every day I go through it. I don't know why, but I do. <laughs> I go, oh, really? And, oh, and then, oh, look at that. Well, that doesn't sound like exercise to me. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> that's just me. Well. And have you, you talked a bit about um, not feeling confident. Oh. Or never feeling confident. No, I literally, mean, I, I have a crying jag in every script. I have one friend I call up and I really, I don't know what I'm doing. And she says, page 85. And I say, well, yes, but it's page 85. <laughs> but this time it's real. It's really not going to work. You know, it's page 85 every time. But, you know, early on in my writing career, I... Um, Alvin Sargent is a brilliant American screenwriter, and um, I, my aunt knew him, and I was just, I think I was even in film school, and she said to me, oh, actually, my aunt was married to his brother, and she said, oh, God, every time Alvin, this is, you know, after, I think, three Academy Awards, every time Alvin writes a script, he calls up Herb, his brother, and says, oh, God, I gotta give the money back. I can't do this one, I cannot do this one. And I remembered that, because if Alvin Sargent really thinks he can't do it, it, it you know, it, it, maybe that horrible feeling is part of it. And I really do believe it is. And has this got better or worse? Because like, no, you it's had... always terrible. It's just terrible. It's awful. It's but not you, gotten But you better. had a really surreal beginning because your first screenplay, your first produced screenplay uh -huh. was, was for a Disney film. Right. Well, that's I different. Mean, that's, that's a whole different process. There were three of us that's like boot camp and... You know, they, they think there's a little sign outside Disney that says, you know, check your personal artistic ambitions at the door. You are making a Disney product here. And, and I mean, do not forget, we got to sell a lot of plush. So that's a very different um, experience. It was, but let me say, it was great. It was hard work. We rewrote every scene minimum 35 times. It was just over and over and over. And uh, so... It was great experience. I, I don't. I don't mean to talk it down, um, but it was definitely building a Disney product, right. as opposed to feeling like you are bringing your own creative expression to something. Susanna Grant there talking to Bry Hansen, uh, and if nothing else, now you like I have learned that the same person wrote Erin Brockovich and also Disney's Pocahontas. So there you go, learn a new thing every day. And I'm here with uh, Natasha, who's an AD at the moment and also aspiring to be a screenwriter. How many scripts have you written so far or are you at the treatment stages? What are you up to? I'm at treatment stages. Um, I've started writing a short, but I haven't finished anything yet. So fingers crossed these will inspire me. <laughs> and do you think that these lectures actually accurately reflect the struggle that people go through whilst they're trying to draft their scripts? Because you're listening to people who very much have had and made a success out of their careers, but people who are trying to be writers whilst holding down a job like you are during the day, um, do you think they kind of remember that struggle and what it's actually like trying to bash out scripts in the evenings? Absolutely. It's actually really reassuring. Um, Susanna Grant last night was saying how she used to start at 11 o'clock at night and write until she was tired and fell asleep. And, and then it had to change when she had a partner and kids. And No, but they do. They very much remind themselves of how hard it is to start out and how they're lucky. And if you were giving a screenwriting lecture in 10 years' time after, obviously, all of your treatments have become uh, mega box office successes, what would be your advice to people that are trying to do what you're doing at the moment? What have you found works for you? I find if you can crack into the industry in whatever way you can, then you make the contacts and you get to see 
life from other sides of the film. Um, I'm really grateful to have been able to try, you know, three or four different departments so far and at least see how it comes together once the script is already there. So I'm kind of working backwards, I suppose. And Susanna Grant talked about how directing films actually impacted the way that she writes scripts now as well for the better because she has a better understanding of how to construct things. Do you find that being an AD on sets that you have a better understanding of how to construct the scripts you're writing at home? Definitely made me think about locations and shots and trying to schedule it and it can only be a good thing to see it from another perspective. Gives you more information as to how it's going to work further down the line. Yeah, suddenly you're a bit more realistic about whether you can afford the alien crashing through the roof and that kind of thing. Exactly, and car chases. and whether you can, If you can start with a short film that's in one room with two actors and no extras, I think you can probably get that made with the people you know already. So. This is David Gordon Green. I'm in London promoting this film called Prince Avalanche, which is a story of um, two road workers played by Paul Rudd and Emile Hirsch that are repainting yellow lines uh, down the road in kind of a strange mythical journey after forest fires devastated their community. What about the equal time agreement? The equal time boombox agreement doesn't apply in this case, all right? That's just for recreation. Oh, come on! Hey! We got a lot of lines to paint, and it's a very long road. I suggest you start the machine and keep it going. Okay, Alvin. Yeah? You have your tool belt on backwards. The film is based on an Icelandic film called Either Way, and... As far as my adaptation, I wanted to be very respectful because the film was really meaningful to me. Um, but I, I basically just plagiarized all the things that I loved about it and found applicable. And then I wanted to make sure that I brought a distinctive quality of my own signature to it as well. Hey, Alvin. Yeah? I lied to you. I do have my eye on someone that's a girl. Yeah? Her name is Maggie Johnston. She's a total goddess. I've been working on her for a while. Nice. But I kind of messed it up, though. I lost her to my friend Kip, but I think they were on the road to splitting up if the way she was behaving last time I saw her at the dance club was any indication. Problems in the relationship? Probably by now. Was she uh, giving off signals? Signals? Yeah. Well, she was making out with me in the toilet, if that's a signal. What? Someone knocked on the door. Probably would have gone full lamb chop if no one had knocked. With your friend Kip's girlfriend? Yeah, probably ex-girlfriend by now. I think a writer can only follow their intuition and instinct, and so I write what I think is funny when I'm writing a comedy, and I write what I find emotional when I'm writing a drama, and try to be able to disappear into the work rather than necessarily have a, a specific recipe for it. I try to see what's applicable to each project. I just think you got to be honest with yourself and not try to outguess what an audience is going to think or a studio executive or, in many cases, a director. I've written a lot of movies that were writing jobs and I think the ones that the only ones that I haven't been happy with are the ones where I tried to anticipate someone's reaction. I think going with your gut and following your instinct is what leads to the most honest uh, product. Seriously, are you really cool not getting laid all summer? I don't really have much of a choice, do I? I mean, when you were out here for the spring by yourself, didn't you get lonely, like so lonely? There's a difference between being lonely and being alone. There is? Oh yeah. I reap the rewards of solitude. How do you do that? Well, I write letters to your sister. I read, I paint, I sew. I had a cat, so I used to take care of my pet before it was killed. I have a lot of 
prescription medications, but I try not to use them. Wow. I don't know. I get so horny out here in nature. Don't you? Horny? I don't think so. Sometimes it writes itself. Sometimes it's easier than others. Typically, a first draft is very easy, and then fine-tuning it and revising it and and just watching the house of cards collapse when you're trying to reconstruct a certain character or a certain uh, narrative agenda, that can be very difficult. The script for Prince Avalanche is about 65 pages. I, I just think, for me, I, I think a script needs to be under 90 pages so that I can let it breathe. I don't read anything that's even submitted to me that's over 95 pages. I don't have the time, and it's unrealistic to think that that's going to be a, a reasonable length of a film. And I w certainly won't go into production on anything that long. So it's just trying to find something manageable. You know, several of my scripts have been under 70 pages, and, it just, and then we film all of that, and then we use that as springboards to new concepts and conversations and improvisations. Alvin, I'm finished. Could I have another one? Yeah, we'll put that one back. Okay. You didn't write in it, did you? Yeah, I worked the puzzle. Oh, no, don't do that. Don't do that, please. It's a, it, that, it's a collector's item. It's an antique. It's rare. Do you understand? I'm out here to have my things treated well and with respect. I get it. I get it, yeah. Do you really? Yeah. You hear it. You hear it. Yes, you are hearing yes, me. Yes, yes. Are you I get hearing it. me? Yes. What are you hearing me with? My ears. No, I don't want you to just hear me with your ears. I want you to hear the whole thing. Okay. My advice is to listen to the way people talk take public transportation and bring a little um, uh, recording device and then play it back and, and actually transcribe what you've heard because there's a lot of scripts that I read that feel very written and I think you can really differentiate yourself as a writer by writing things that feel more spoken than written because that's ultimately how it's going to be uh, projected on screen as performed. Uh, at least that should, that's typically the, uh, the agenda. So I think that's something that if people had a greater ability to listen and pause and make things imperfect rather than precise, or you'd be in pretty good shape. That was David Gordon Green, and Prince Avalanche is in UK cinemas on the 18th of October. Now I need to put on my posh stuttering voice here because we're about to hear from Richard Curtis, the man who's been behind some of the biggest British films of all time. Four Weddings and a Funeral, Love Actually, Bridget Jones's Diary, and he started as a TV writer, of course, creating such fondly remembered shows as Blackadder and later The Vicar of Dibley. Speaking to BAFTA and the BFI, here's what he had to say about his work and his writing process. The first question that I've asked myself is why did I start writing films? And the answer is because someone called Michael, an American, asked me to write a film. I got a phone call from my agent saying he wants to see you tonight. Uh, and I thought of the idea for the film that I was going to sell him on the Northern Line. And that was the first big mistake that I've never made again, which is that I always have lived with the idea of any film that I'm going to do for at least a year before I uh, eventually start writing it. Films can't be infatuations, they've got to be uh, relationships. And I suppose this is my first observation, that I think the difference between having a good idea for a film and a finished film that you like is the same as seeing a pretty girl at a party and being there when your wife delivers the third baby. It's an incredibly long journey, and a good idea is, is only the tiny little spark at the beginning of this immense uh, process. Anyway, I came up with the idea for Michael. It was about a father and a son who both found out on the same night that the girls they were with, the girlfriend and the wife, were having sex with other people. And so they both, as it were, left their flat and their house and moved in together. 
in a hotel and had to, as it were, deal with their peculiar situations together. And it was called Four Eyes and Fat Thighs. And I think that's the only thing I really got out of it, because that's weirdly close to four weddings and a funeral. So it was the first. And then I wrote a draft. I went out to LA. Uh, and I wrote a second draft under the producer's eagle eye in his guest room. And then he put me together with a director with whom I wrote a third draft. And then we handed it in. And we had um, what I think is a, a quite a typical American meeting. They loved the script. <laughs> they really loved it. And I asked them, did they have any reservations at all? Because their smiles were so big. And they said the dialogue wasn't great. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, it was, it was uh, too English and a bit too formal. And I said, well, all right. And then they said that the two leading characters were not good um, <laughs> because they were both weak and they need, you needed someone to be able to root for in the movie. And then they said, and obviously the jokes are all very English. So we'd have to think of jokes that would appeal more to an American sense of humor. And then I remember saying, to them, that really only leaves the title. Um, and they said, we hate the title. Uh, but the strange thing was, they still said, can't wait to get uh, the next draft. So I went home. I was staying with a friend of mine by the stage, because I was sort of having a nervous breakdown. Uh, I got a self-induced temperature of 103. About a week later, I flew home to England. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer sued me in perpetuity. I never delivered the script. And that explains pretty well everything about what I have done uh, since then. First, never do a project that you haven't thought about beforehand. Be sure that you're working with people who actually like the work you do, which I think is hugely important. Choose the people you work with really carefully. This director was a lovely man, but I remember when we were talking about the film the very first day, uh, he said, oh, I so identify with this film. When my wife left me, I just went out and had sex with a different girl every night for a month. And this was a film about two men who'd only ever had sex with one person in their entire lives. Uh, so he was completely and utterly the wrong man to be making this film. But most importantly, and this isn't a rule for everyone, but it sort of is, explains everything since then, I decided that I would never write a film about anything that I didn't really know about very personally. I didn't know, I realized when I was writing the film where Americans shopped. I didn't know what they'd watched on TV when they were kids. I didn't know anything about the structure of their schools. So I came straight home and I wrote a film called Camden Town Boy which was eventually called The Tour Guy, about someone who lived in Camden Town, where I lived, about someone who had hay fever, which I had, and about someone whose job was to be a straight man to a comedian whose name was, in the script, Ron Anderson, and my job was to be Rowan Atkinson's straight man. So I have always, since then, basically stuck to what I think is true to my experience and emotionally right for me. The next question I've asked myself is why so many of the films, or the films have generally turned out as I hoped they would. And this is quite a complicated and odd thing, and I didn't 
realize, as it were, is going to be the core of what I was going to say when I was asked about it. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll write about playing lots of pop music um, while I'm writing. But on the whole, the films that I've worked on have turned out as I intended. And I don't know how replicable it is, and I don't know if my experience is very personal, but I would say that, a, from my point of view, a huge amount of the challenge facing a screenwriter is about control. And that is a very important and tricky area. But if you write, like I do, and again, I'm being personal, if you write personal, small films, but it may be any kind of films, I just haven't got experience of superhero movies, getting yourself heard throughout the process seems to me to be absolutely crucial. I chose Mel Smith to direct my first film and I think we did pretty well as a group of inexperienced people trying to make uh, the best film that we could. When it came to Four Weddings, I decided I was going to take it even more seriously. I remember asking Working Title for a list of ten directors uh, who they thought might be good for the film. And then Em and I took a month out and we watched films by all those ten directors and none of them rang a bell. We couldn't see anything in the work which felt like the film that we wanted to do. Uh, I mean, this does add to the amount of time that you have to give to a project, but I think it also saves you a lot of time in the end. And then we set out on this bizarre quest of just watching everything. And I remember for three weeks we sat in a house and I think we watched about a hundred things. And finally, on day 17, we watched a TV film called Ready When You Are, Mr. McGill, which Mike Newell had made. And suddenly we saw something there which felt like Four Weddings, which felt like it was realistic, but also funny, a kind of humane, slightly exaggerated comic realism. And then we went back and looked at Mike's other work, particularly looked at Enchanted April. And we could see the same thing again, and also a roughness about how it was shot. So he wasn't on our list or on anyone else's list, but we went and asked Mike to do it, and that was, I'm sure, the best decision pretty well of my career. Uh, and then, with Mike, we made, and this is again where it was extraordinary producing and deal, we made a deal that we, me and Duncan, would be involved in every part of the process of making the film, which meant being there when it was being cast, being there every day when it was shot, and being there a lot of the time when it was being edited, even though not all the time. And that was the deal, and Mike knew it was an odd deal, but brilliantly, in his position of seniority and experience, he agreed, he agreed to the deal, and he stuck with it with enormous grace throughout the entire <coughs> process. And he only tried to stab me once um, with a plastic knife, and that was very near the end of the edit. Well, Tony Gilroy, the writer of Devil's Advocate and the Bourne movies and Michael Clayton, has just given uh, quite an inspiring uh, talk and then uh, a Q&A in which he seemed to be quite searingly honest about some of his writing processes. I'm standing outside the NFT1 now uh, here at the BFI. Let's see what uh, some of the audience here made of it. Uh, my name is Alric Riley and I am a director. What was the real takeaway message for you from Tony's speech? The real takeaway message for me was that when you're writing, you have to actually feel what you're writing when you're writing it. So at the end when he said, 
writing that action scene and you saw in his interview he was so animated. He, he wanted to go, right, fast, 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 because he's got to get this, get that, run here, run there, save her, save him. Well, I thought was fantastic. It's not a surgical thing. It's something where you get totally involved. My name is Phil. I'm a songwriter. Uh, I live and work in London. He kept repeating, you go into the office all year and there's three days of the year when the sparks fly. And I think anybody, in no matter what creative field, would identify with that. Yeah, because you're thinking, well, great, there's three days that pay for the whole year, but that means there's 300 and however many other days that, that don't. Well, in my experience, that's tr doing what I do, that's the same thing. I write 50 songs a year, you might hear one of them. And he also said, didn't he, that as a writer, it helps to always be directing, in a way, in your head when you're coming up with the scenes themselves. As a director, do you come across scripts where you think, you know what, the writer hasn't been doing this at all. They haven't been directing this at all whilst they've been writing it. Yes. <laughs> and do you think writers should pay attention to that advice? You know, writing, directing, this business, it's a collaborative process. And so sometimes you'll read a script and there's a sequence and you might read a sequence where the best action scene ever in the series. But there's no action scene written. It's just that's what's written. And so what you do is you, just, you either build it yourself you work with the stunt team, you talk to the writer, but it's collaborative. And so you build something out of that little line. And in many, many ways, that is the fun of directing. Yeah, the pin drops. He was talking about a moment where suddenly everything comes into focus. You have the idea for the film. It drops. He kept saying that. You can identify with that. Oh, oh yes, I can. It's very different with a three-minute pop song. There are some moments where things just click and you go, that's a great idea. And obviously, that's what happens for him. Except when he has a great idea, there are 500 people working on his film, it takes two or three years to get done, and it, and it makes a lot of money at the box office. Billions! Yeah, there was a great moment where he talked about the moment that Michael Clayton all fell into place. Let's hear a clip about that. We need, you need, like, anything. We need a spark. We need some place to start. And for me, we need something really small. Small is good. Small is really, really good for me. Something small and very, very specific. And um, the fixer at the law firm I kept coming back to. I thought, wow, that's a really cool thing. And one day I wrote a scene. This is years before I, I'll do Michael Clayton. I write this scene. And it probably, I probably went away from it and came back to it and went away from it, came back to it. And it leads to a whole long explore. But uh, the, the, I'm going to show you a clip. And the clip I'm going to show you, and sometimes these scenes don't make it to the movie. But this scene makes it almost in its entirety. Uh, it probably had different names and it was in a different setting. But I kept writing this. I had this scene that I wrote this hit-and-run scene where this guy comes out. You know, I start to write into this, and I start to write around the possibilities of this. And this project was interrupted many times by different things and, and different circumstances. And Born interrupted this project, and Proof of Life interrupted this project. But I make the biggest mess. If I told you the versions of Michael Clayton that I had written, you know, that were architected around this scene, I mean, there's a version and outline versions, not versions of drafts, but, you know, chase down a version that's all about the sun and the fantasy fiction and chase around a, down a version where there's a, a, a love story with a mistress of a corporate client that he's trying to extract the client from and a murder within the, in the word processing department of the, I mean, all kinds of things. This mad explore will go on for a very long period of time. And really what has to happen is the mess really has to stop. Um, it really has to stop someplace. And you really have to say to yourself, we have to say to ourselves, where is the movie? Where's the movie? What is the movie? I have all this stuff. 
you know, I'm building this whole world. I need to know what the movie is about. And you cannot, at a certain point, you cannot pass go without doing this. If you're in the system, you can get seduced past this because sometimes you're coming up with a bunch of groovy stuff. I was on, on Born Supremacy, and we got way far down the road with all this great stuff in the beginning. Everybody got all excited, but there was really no movie there. Um, and I was the only one who knew it. And they were building the movie as sort of design build. We're building it at the same time. And, we're, and it's like, wow, there's no, and it's fun to say, stop. There's, we don't know what the movie's about. And, and, and then a really a, a great thing came out of that, which was this whole story of atonement. That's, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about that. You cannot settle on this idea. You cannot settle on the decision about where your movie is about. There's no slip from the teacher or there's no anything like that. We're doing proof of life. Taylor and I, uh, Taylor Hackford and I, bought a uh, magazine article from Vanity Fair about the kidnap and ransom business in South America. And it was based on a, uh, a very great article. And the guy had been kidnapped. And what was interesting about the article was that the, the kidnapping had gone, uh, had gone uh, sideways because the company didn't have insurance or pay insurance. So we took this article. We convinced the people that the article was about that they were better served by having us make a fictional version of it. And we were now on the road. So we had all the research from the article. We had all the research that we were doing. We're running all over the place in South America and jungles and all this great stuff. We do not have a movie. And we're actually here in London. And, and you know, we're flying on the, on, I don't know, who was paying for that? Uh, <laughs> who released that movie? Um, so we're, I mean, we're, you know, all over the place. We're in Germany, we're here, we're there, we're in London. And we're actually, we're sitting here and we're talking to a guy who's a kidnap and ransom, has a kidnap and ransom boutique business uh, book of business there, and we're talking to him about his whole thing and the cases that he's handling, and he's this gorgeous guy, charismatic, Oxbridge, MI5, just this total stud, and he's telling us, you know, not only can I give you the research you need, but when, you're going to need kidnap insurance when you make the movie, and I can underwrite the policy. <laughs> and we leave, and we go to the elevator, and I go, Taylor, I got the movie. And he goes, what? He go, I go, if we get kidnapped, making this movie. I do not want that guy sitting with my wife for six months. And that's the movie. That's the movie. That, it drops. You go, oh man, that's it. That's the movie. Hi, my name's Max. I'm an editor in mostly advertising. Um, and I'm just finishing a feature film, which I wrote and directed and funded. So what did you make of what Tony Gilroy was saying in there? It was nice hearing him talk about being intuitive rather than following a formula. He just had a generally very nice, loose, relaxed style, which I went to the David S. Goya one, and that was good. It was interesting, but it wasn't, I didn't feel really sort of fired up or inspired by it. It was just kind of fairly standard stuff that I'd heard a million times before. But this, whilst he wasn't so kind of, he didn't give you any direct answers, it was a bit more inspirational. Yeah, someone asked, didn't they, in the audience about referring to a, a book about structuring a film, and he was quite plain about the fact that uh, those are pretty unnecessary things to have around your office, even though he's been yeah. given into temptation to have one from time to time. Yeah, I mean, I think particularly someone like myself, you know, if you're a starting out writer, then the tendency is that you feel like you want those stabilizers to fall back on. And Chris and I, uh, we've just been writing a, a script and we sort of, we got through four days of working, following the, um, you know, the Blake Snyder Save the Cat thing. And we, had, we got to the end of it and we had a sort of functional uh, story that worked mechanically but was completely lifeless. And that was the great thing about what 
Tony Gilroy was saying, which is much more about just rely on your, your instincts. And also, he was quite honest about the fact that uh, writing action is quite difficult. For the man who wrote the Bourne trilogy, I yeah, suppose yeah, that's yeah. quite a star commission, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I didn't actually realise that he wrote that he actually wrote so much of the action. It, it was an interesting approach as well, actually, kind of going to the places and being in the places and writing out of that. I mean, if you think about, say, like, like the Avengers or whatever, it's all CG sets anyway. So it's kind of he's got a much more grounded approach to action, which is, I think, comes across in the films. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think it's quite a common fault for um, aspiring screenwriters to just not appreciate that action sequences need to be written by a screenwriter just the same as as dialogue. Actually, Hussein Amani, the guy who wrote Drive, uh, was talking about this earlier this week. Of course, Drive starts with as we all know, this huge action sequence, even though there's then, you know, an hour or so of a lot of talking and lingering shots of, of Ryan Gosling. It, here's what he said uh, in his screenwriting lecture about writing that sequence. Well, it, it is a fantastic piece of directing, I think. But, but I mean, the, the reason sort of I want to talk about this clip was because, for me, a lot of screenwriting is... I mean, people's perceptions of it is that it's all about the dialogue. And it, the script, that's a seven-page block of scene description, all those story beats were there. And the genesis of it was, was that I went to meet the head of security at Universal because they were commissioning it. And the first thing he said to me was, there's no way you can have a police chase at the beginning because they'll have helicopters and the moment they have eyes on the car, there's no point, which is why I think so few car chase movies, you know, police chases really happen these days. And all the ones I've seen on TV, there's always that aerial footage. But then that became a challenge, so sort of I went away and I thought, well, what if it's a roof? And he said, yeah, but they'll just cover surround the building. And then I thought, well, what if there's a crowd? You know, so the idea was to set it, to, so it started with a basketball game at the Staples Centre, but then it's also, what was really fun about it was how do you, is, is mixing two pieces of sort of sound writing really, which is the commentary of the basketball game, but also the police radio going on at the same time. So all of these things were scripted and then obviously enhanced by, by Nicholas Ruffin who directed it. But I think the point is that there's, there's so much visual writing, I think, you know, for any screenwriter. And I think some, that's sometimes something that we're not given credit for. I, I love writing in pictures and, and lots of pages without dialogues. So, I mean, that's really why I wanted to start with something like this, because it's, um, it's also another example of what we do. Well, it's great when you do actually um, read the text. Some of the description is so cinematic in itself. I think that police car um, holding back in the shots you describe as a shark. Once one's read the text and seen how it's been executed, it's very exciting to see the extent to which you're actually dictating everything from day one. You are, and it, it becomes a massive collaboration with all the, all the people you work with. And, 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 you know, I was very fortunate, you know, with the director, but also the, I think it's beautifully edited, this scene. I think, I think the music is fantastic. And, and it really started with the, the security guy. And that's the thing. It wasn't, I can't even say it started with me. It started with the person who sort of went, well, that's impossible. <coughs> and, and rose to the challenge. Yeah, and it's sort of, so, so I, think, I think the whole thing is incredibly collaborative and that's, that's part of the fun. And I think the research for me is one of the most important bits. And, and this was this was really something that came out of research. And then the other thing I remember doing was, I don't actually drive, so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did they know that when they hired you? They didn't, I didn't, I didn't tell them I didn't drive. Um, I, I didn't tell them I'd fill my driving test seven times, but. 
<laughs> I, I did tell Nicholas Reffin, who's the director, and then in every interview he gave afterwards, he said that he'd failed it eight times. So I'm sure there's a little bit of competition going on. But the point was, so, so what I did is I bought myself a, a map of LA and, and almost planned the route as well. So, um, so all of these little stages were all kind of scripted and obviously they didn't necessarily use the same um, exact roads and stuff, but it helped me visualize a, a lot of the driving scenes was to just sort of sit there and think, well, he's going from this street to that street and then he turns a corner there or there's a little, like that underpass where he goes and hides was somewhere that um, the studio got someone to, um, to drive me around and that was one of the places that we saw and had a look at. So I, th I think the research was also a very important part of that particular sequence and it's something I love doing. Hossein Amini there talking to film producer Tanya Saghatchian. Well, that's it from the BAFTA podcast this month. Remember, there are a whole host of interviews with writers, directors and producers on BAFTA Guru. So if you're contemplating your first feature or just looking for advice on how to get your career up and running, you could do much worse than visiting guru.bafta.org. I've been Ollie Mann. The producer was Matt Hill. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.